Today marks the one-year anniversary of the death of George Floyd, an event that sparked calls for... Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. For police reform and catapulted the Black Lives Matter movement to national prominence. So one year later, what has this movement achieved or more accurately failed to achieve? We'll answer that question in tonight's Hold the Line. Welcome to Hold the Line. I'm Buck Sexton. So we are at the one-year mark from George Floyd's killing. He, uh, there was a, a trial, as we know, Derek Chauvin found guilty of murder. But that one incident, the George Floyd killing, led to the BLM movement's second iteration, which involved lots of protests all across the country, stretching on for months, and hundreds of riots and looting and a lot of destruction. Alongside all of that, there was a narrative. The narrative being pushed by BLM was that law enforcement is systemically racist, that unarmed black men are routinely murdered by police without consequence, and that this is an imminent issue that must be tackled. It, it is the, the civil rights issue of our era. It must be dealt with right away. And the way to do it, according to the left, was defund the police. That's what we were told would bring about a better future for all communities, but particularly those predominantly minority communities that often suffer from disproportionate rates of crime, where there's uh, high crime areas of major cities. And that was the storyline as the riots were happening, as the media was covering this with, with fervor. And now we know what the last 12 months have actually brought us. If we look at what has gone on here, there was a spike in murders, in homicides, that you can directly correlate to. I mean, you can look right on a, on a timeline, look at where the numbers are pointing, right after the return of the BLM movement and its prominence all across the country, you had many more people being shot on the streets of American cities. In fact, leading to uh, a horrific three-digit percentage increases in a lot of major cities across America. Heather McDonald today in the Wall Street Journal takes particular, uh, particular interest in the situation of Minneapolis, which is where the George Floyd uh, incident happened and also where there were riots afterwards and, and it was the beginning of the burgeoning BLM resurgence. She writes in the Wall Street Journal today, 19 children in Minneapolis have been shot this year, an increase of 171% over the same period in 2020. Their relatives wonder where the protesters are. Why ain't nobody mad about a 10-year-old, my grandson, fighting for his life, asked Sherry Jennings, Ladavian's grandmother, at a May 17th mayoral event, because a cop didn't shoot him. Is that why? This is a question that a lot of people who approach the issue of both criminal justice reform and law enforcement with good faith. They want to know why is it that those who call for police reform or those who call for uh, a different approach to criminal justice, spend so little time or even no time 
on the actual rise in violence in communities across the country, but would much rather focus on the very small, by the numbers, uh, incidences of lethal police use of force that are not justified under laws. Essentially, excessive force resulting in death, murder by cop in some circumstances. That's incredibly rare, given there are 330 million people in this country. The last year for which we have full statistics, 2019, there were about 14 unarmed African Americans killed by police, total. But we're told that this is the issue of our time and that all the other violence that's going on seems to recede into the background. The activists, the left, the media, the Democrat party, no real interest, or at least not nearly the same kind of interest in dealing with that issue. So Heather McDonald continues to write about this in her Wall Street Journal piece today. Minneapolis homicides between January 1st and last week are up 108% compared with the same period in 2020. Shootings were up 153% and carjackings 222%. The crime increase began after Floyd's death and has never let up. Um, That is something that we should have a reckoning with in this country, that the BLM movement's rise coincided with, and many would argue, caused the changes in policing and attitudes toward police as well that has resulted in a tremendous spike in homicides, in deaths of of innocents all across the country. And it is not just Minneapolis, that's just one example of it because that is where the George Floyd incident happened. There are murals to George Floyd in Minneapolis across the country and in fact around the world. He has become a martyr for this BLM movement. So the situation of Minneapolis, the city where this all got started, where police reform defund the police, in fact, was the rallying cry. It's worth looking at what's going on there. Uh, But it's not only in Minneapolis where they've had a huge spike in homicides. It's also across the country. As McDonald writes, as lawless as Minneapolis has become, it is hardly atypical. Drive-by shootings and homicides jumped nationwide during and after the Floyd riots. Homicides rose 50% in Chicago in 2020, 46% in New York City, and 38% in Los Angeles. The U.S. saw the largest annual percentage increase in homicides in recorded history in 2020. That increase has continued in 2021. So 50% in Chicago, 46% New York City, 38% Los Angeles. Those are the kinds of numbers that in normal times, in a more normal political climate, would cause chiefs of police and mayors even to lose their jobs. But it happened all across the country. So they want us to believe that it's because of the pandemic. Well, that seems like obviously faulty logic because the pandemic, if you think about it, should have resulted in far less violence, far fewer shootings because people are interacting with each other less. They're stuck at home. There are, there aren't go- they aren't going to bars and clubs and there's not as much human-to-human contact. And in fact, other countries around the world, the UK, Canada, saw substantial decreases in homicides and violent crime during the pandemic. So that can't be the uh, explanation here. So what is? Seems most likely, and this is a very contentious point, that it's what, in fact, Heather McDonald coined the phrase, is called the Ferguson effect. Ferguson, uh, Ferguson effect being that law enforcement, when they know they no longer have the political backing of those in power, and when much of the public has turned against them because of the false narrative of racist, destructive police, aren't as willing to do their jobs and take the risks they need to to keep the public safe because they know they are not supported and protected in the pursuit of their duties. And that results in higher crime, 
That results in people being less safe. It results in innocent men, women, and children, and disproportionately innocent men, women, and children who are minorities suffering the consequences of this liberal virtue signaling, which is so much of what is driving the BLM movement, as we all know. So how do we turn this around? The first step is clarity, understanding how we got here and what the cause of this has been, something we'll continue to talk about here on the show. All right, the death of George Floyd has had profound consequences for the men and women in law enforcement, including renewed efforts to strip them of qualified immunity. When we come back, retired NYPD Detective Harry Houck explains what that would mean for police around the country. If you've ever thought about investing in real estate, I want you to take me up on this recommendation right now. Visit doneforyoubuck.com where you can learn more about my friends at Done For Your Real Estate. If you haven't checked them out yet, let me make this easy for you. These guys have found a way to make real estate investing straightforward and their system flat out works. I know because I'm using it. It allows everyday hardworking Americans like you and me to finally own investment real estate without all the risk and difficulty of doing it on your own. I can't possibly tell you in strong enough terms during the 60 second commercial how important it is you check these guys out. So how about this? If you visit doneforyoubuck.com, at the top of the page is a podcast interview I did with Done For Your Real Estate, where you can hear my personal experience with their company in my own words. I'll tell you about it in detail, from picking the city to the house, getting the broker, getting the loan, even getting a tenant in place, so now you get the free cash flow coming to you every month, just like I do. Visit doneforyoubuck.com, listen to the podcast interview, and give my friends a chance to show you what they can do for you. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Qualified immunity is an, an unjust doctrine that has been codified in statute after statute that has allowed for law enforcement to operate with callous disregard of black and brown bodies, with reckless impunity uh, for our lives without any consequences. Democratic Congresswoman Ayanna Presley taking aim at qualified immunity, the legal principle which shields law enforcement from civil lawsuits for actions taken while performing their duties reasonably. Since the death of George Floyd one year ago, Democrats have sought to end the doctrine, claiming it essentially allows police to act with impunity. 
So what would an end to qualified immunity mean for law enforcement around the country? Here to discuss the issue further is retired NYPD detective Harry Houck. Harry, good to see you. Good to see you, man. How you doing? I'm good. Harry, let's just jump. I mean, there's a lot to talk about right now with the law enforcement picture across the country. But let's start with this point on qualified immunity. What, what would it have meant for you if when you were in the NYPD, qualified immunity was gone, taken away, if the Democrats had gotten their way? Well, what it would mean for me or, or how would I act? Basically, what it would do is I would most likely quit the police department. Uh, because there's no way that any officer out there any day can take any kind of action and then they can be personally sued, which means they probably have to pay for their own defense and uh, possibly lose their house for acting in good faith. And uh, that would destroy law enforcement from now on. So, so because right now you have lawyers, for example, for George Floyd's family are coming out and saying that the removal of qualified immunity wouldn't actually do anything because already, this was the excuse that I heard today, already cops um, are thrown out or hung out to dry essentially by their departments anyway. But that reasonable standard, meaning that you have qualified immunity if you're acting reasonably within your duties, that does offer a layer of protection for cops, right? I mean, bring us in on the reality here. There's a lot of protection. You know, I, I mean, you know, basically what they want to do is they want to take they want to take the uh, rules of law away from police officers. Uh, they've got a very hard job to do out there. You're in situations where you've got to make decisions, split second decisions. I'm not even saying making a decision of one or two seconds, split uh, split second decisions, life and death. All right. So when you make a decision like that in good faith and maybe something happened and you might have been you might have been wrong or although you acted in good faith then, um, you know, we need this law to protect us, all right? The fact is that if they did away with this law, police officers would not be protected. Um, so, I mean, who's gonna take action if you know you're gonna lose your house or something like that? And you know the courts are very, uh, you know, and the civil courts especially, you know, are anti-cop. And you, every time you turn around, you'd be losing a lawsuit or you'd be paying an attorney for a lawsuit. And there's, there's no way that that law could ever pass. Harry, uh, we also have the, the uh, anniversary of George Floyd's uh, killing today. And so there's a lot of, of focus on that. The White House had a meeting with George Floyd's family in private today. People are also looking around and, and asking, well, what exactly has been achieved since then, especially by the BLM movement and the defund the police rhetoric that we've been hearing? Um, here is what uh, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said she thinks is, is the cause of the violence that's, uh, that's out. Or rather, sorry, here's what she says about what should happen with budgets to the police. The mayor of St. Louis says that she believes more police does not prevent crime. Does President Biden agree with that? The president believes there's a number of steps that need to be taken to rebuild trust in communities. Police reform is long outdated. He also believes that there needs to be funding for local programs and local initiatives. And there's not going to be a shortage of funding uh, under our watch. Well, not going to be a shortage of funding for programs and initiatives. I mean, Harry, it seems like a pretty straightforward proposition. Does this administration at the White House, are they supportive of more police on the streets to deal with the huge crime wave that has hit the whole nation for the last year. What do you make of the press secretary's there'll be funding for local initiatives comments? She has no idea what she's talking about. 
that money's going to go elsewhere besides, you know, um, the, the police department and giving extra money to police officers. Police officers have been yelling for years, we need more money for training and for other ways to confront perpetrators out there on the street. And we never get it. Now that the fact that they're taking money away, I mean, look at Minneapolis, less police. Well, has the crime rate really gone down? No, it's gone up. Murders are up 100%. You know, uh, all the other crimes are up 100% in, in that area there. They even have an autonomous zone. Is That's what taking money away from the police department means. Can you remember a time when there was such a, a clear anti-police feeling, um, not just uh, in some places in the country on the street, but from a major political party? When they're, I mean, they're talking no. about defunding police and there are Democrats in elected office who speak about this like it's part of a civil rights struggle, Harry. As somebody who served the NYPD for your career, have you ever ever remember a time like this? Never. Never in my 25 years in law enforcement ever heard this. But never in my 25 years in law enforcement have we had uh, the Democratic Party um, spew hatred towards the police. Uh, I mean, ne- never, you know, when a, when a small child was shot and killed because two thugs were shooting it out in the neighborhood, um, we did our damnedest to find those perpetrators, right? Now, the, in- the instances that we've seen, especially in Minneapolis and probably all over the country in these Democrat-run uh, states and cities, is the fact that they don't care about these black children being shot. They don't care about a five-year-old, seven-year-old being shot at because two thugs were shooting out and we have a dead child. This woman came out today in Minneapolis, I think I believe it was a grandmother, and she was saying, well, how, well where's the protest for my, for my 12-year-old son, uh, grandson? No protest. And you know, I'll tell you what, uh, Buck, nothing is gonna change in these neighborhoods until the good people in these na- neighborhoods rise up and demonstrate, demonstrate against their governors and their city councils and demand demand that law and order comes back to these communities. Do you think the Democrat Party is going to get the message here, Harry? I mean, the, the numbers as of today that uh, Heather McDonald put forward in her Wall Street Journal op-ed that I think is getting rightfully a lot of attention, murders up 100 percent, 120 percent, 70 percent, 90 I mean, in the biggest cities all across the country. It feels like at some point there has to be a reckoning here. And, and I'm wondering if, if you think that we're close or that your expectation is we're going to go through a very rough summer with the continuation of this kind of violence before the party that supports the anti-cop rhetoric realizes they're only making the problem worse. They don't get it and they're not going to get it. They believe that somehow most Americans back this kind of uh, rhetoric uh, and and anti-police support, but it does not. I'm looking forward, the only thing that we look forward to now is the 2022 elections, where hopefully these people will give up on the Democrats and bring in some smart Republicans to change things and we can have law and order in the streets again like we did uh, during uh, during Trump. NYPD detective uh, retired, Harry Howe. Harry, good to see you, man. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on, Buck. As crime continues to rise across the United States, Democrats are renewing their efforts to pass sweeping gun control laws. After the break, editor of BearingArms.com, Cam Edwards, is going to join us to discuss the latest there. Stay with us. I've been telling you for a while now about online thieves who can easily steal your home's title. But you don't have to take my word for it. Take it from this thief who stole over 150 homes and was sentenced to 25 years in prison. This is why you need home title lock. 
Nobody thinks that I can take their house and borrow against the house. No, oh, no, I have title insurance for that. No, it's, it's in my name, or he would have to get some special document. They would call me. You know, nobody's calling you. After I've stolen the title, borrowed against it, or sold the property, or done whatever I've done with it, it's 60 to 90 days to even figure out that, that they're the victim of this crime. You know, by that point, you start getting foreclosure notices, and you realize you've got four mortgages on your house. Not only that, you don't even own your home anymore. It's not even in your name. Heard enough? Don't let this crime happen to you. Go to HomeTitleLock.com and register your address to see if you're already a victim and enter code RADIO for 30 free days of protection. That's code RADIO at HomeTitleLock.com. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki is taking some heat yet again. After a reporter laid out the stats from a violent weekend in Chicago, Saki claimed that America has a gun problem, not a crime problem. Watch. Is there a crime problem in this country? Well, I would say certainly there is a guns problem, uh, and that's something the president would say. And there are communities where uh, local violence and community violence is an issue. I will say um, that we don't often highlight, and you just gave me the opportunity to, the fact that between mass shootings, mass shootings that get a lot of attention, that we lower the flags, there are hundreds, thousands of people who lose their lives. And that's one of the reasons the president will continue to advocate for the Senate passing uh, back universal background checks, but also advocate for actions in states where we have seen uh, the greatest level of activism over the past several years. Nearly 50 people were shot in Chicago this past weekend, with at least 29 shot in New York City. Experts have attributed this rise in crime to de-policing communities in response to BLM protests. But instead of addressing the real issue, the Biden administration touts gun control measures. Well, let's get into where that all stands. Here to react, editor of BearingArms.com, Cam Edwards. Cam, good to see you again. Hey, Buck, thanks so much for the invite. Okay, let's just take on this, this argument. If, if we're going to take Jen Psaki seriously, which maybe is, is the first mistake, but if we're going to take her seriously and she's going to say we have a, a gun problem, how has the gun picture changed in the last 12 months such that you have triple-digit homicide increases in pretty much every major American city? Is there anything they can point to? Well, they can point to record high gun sales. Uh, you know, the National Shooting Sports Foundation estimates that there are about 21.5 million firearms sold last year, about 8.5 million new gun owners. But the idea that these new gun owners and these legal gun sales are what's fueling the violence is absolutely absurd. Uh, in fact, one of the few major cities in the country to see a decline in its homicide rate last year was Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, which is the capital of one of the most gun-friendly states in America, a state with constitutional carry, right? So you don't even need a license to carry a firearm as long as you can legally own that gun. They saw their murder rate go down. Meanwhile, the homicide rate, as you pointed out, in New York City, in Chicago, in Los Angeles, in Seattle, they're soaring in all of these communities that have restrictive gun control laws on the books. So the idea that this is a gun problem and not a crime problem is absolutely ridiculous. Cam, uh, you have the Biden administration still occasionally talking about some of the gun control measures they want to get forward. There was a, a push a few weeks ago, we had you on to talk about that, uh, are, are there still, is there anything that's really still percolating on, on the agenda, either through executive order or at least that they'll talk about getting through Congress, though that, that seems to be a difficulty for them given how narrow the Senate and really the House are? 
Yeah, we've got a couple of things going on. You know, Saki mentioned the background check bill, which, by the way, wouldn't prevent a single crime from happening because there's no way for police to proactively enforce a, a universal background check law against private transfers. There's just no way for police to know when these private transfers are taking place. So at best, this is a misdemeanor charge they could apply after a crime has been committed uh, and that uh, transfer has been discovered. But in the executive realm, Buck, there is a proposed rule by the ATF that is live right now. The public comment period began on Friday. Uh, this would redefine uh, common terms like frame and receiver uh, under the Gun Control Act of 1968 and impose sweeping yet really vague standards on the firearms industry uh, when they're making gun parts. This is an attempt by the administration to curtail uh, homemade firearms, the, the so-called ghost guns that uh, gun control advocates talk about. And on Wednesday, the Senate Judiciary Committee is going to take up the nomination of David Chipman to run the ATF. This guy is a former ATF agent who has spent most of the last decade working for gun control groups like Mayors Against Illegal Guns in Giffords. He is a paid gun control activist, and Joe Biden wants him to run the ATF. Uh, obviously, that is a big concern for the firearms industry and gun owners, because if you've got a gun control activist in charge of that agency, they're going to try to weaponize that agency. They're not going to try to uh, you know, come up with clear, concise standards for the industry to follow. They're going to do everything they can to disembowel the firearms industry and gut our right to keep and bear arms. Is there any update on the, uh, the provisions that Democrats want to try to make uh, firearms manufacturers specifically liable? Yeah, not at the federal level. So this is a law called the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act. It was passed by a bipartisan majority of Congress back in 2005. And it basically prevents these types of junk lawsuits where someone can come in and say, well, even though I was robbed at gunpoint, it's actually the gun manufacturer's fault, not the criminals. Um, there are efforts at the federal level to undo and repeal that law, but uh, they're not really going anywhere. But in New York state, Democrats have seized on to a bill that would basically do an end run around the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act and basically declare the manufacturing and the marketing of firearms as a public nuisance so that any time a gun was used in a crime, you could then sue a firearms manufacturer or the firearms distributor or the firearms retailer uh, under the state's public nuisance law. And Democrats are putting, again, they're putting a lot of weight behind this bill this is, uh, I think, going to be challenged in court if it becomes law, but it is a clear attempt, again, to try to bankrupt the industry through these types of junk lawsuits. There's a measure long sought by conservative activists allowing uh, Texans to carry handguns without a license. So it looks like uh, constitutional carry is going to be good to go right now. What's, what's the latest on Texas? Yeah, this is big news. I'm even uh, celebrating with my uh, choice of headwear today. Uh, yeah, Texas uh, lawmakers, this is the last week of the legislative session. And you know how there's always this mad scramble to, to get bills passed. They got it done. Uh, and they approved constitutional carry on Monday night. They also approved the Second Amendment sanctuary bill on Monday night, which basically tells the federal government, look, if you pass any new gun control measures, we're not going to enforce them in Texas. If you guys want to, uh, you're welcome to, but we're not going to spend a dime of public money and we're not going to allow state and local police to enforce any new gun control measures. This is sort of the Second Amendment analog to California's sanctuary law when it comes to illegal immigration. But this is big news in Texas because, you know, it's such a populated state. It's such a, a, a big state in terms of uh, conservatives that when Texas does something like this, I think other states are bound to take notice. And there's going to be, 
I think, an after effect in uh, states like Ohio and Indiana uh, in the next legislative session to do what Texas has done. Don't mess with Texas. Good to see you, Cam. Thanks so much for being with us. You too, bud. The media doing some damage control after a recent report in the Wall Street Journal breathed new life into the lab leak hypothesis of COVID-19's origin. Liz Wheeler, host of the newly launched Liz Wheeler Show, joins us next to give her perspective. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. For over a year and a half, most of mainstream media has utterly dismissed the idea that COVID-19 may have leaked from a lab in Wuhan, in part because the Trump administration kept pushing the argument that, uh, well, let's just take a look at the headlines, actually, from last year. How about that? NPR scientists debunk lab accident theory of pandemic emergence. That was uh, one. The Guardian, here's another one. Ignore the conspiracy theories. Scientists know COVID-19 wasn't created in a lab. And CNN, Anthony Fauci just crushed Donald Trump's theory on the origins of coronavirus. Fauci crushed Trump's theory? Really? The theory that he's now so open to thoroughly investigating. Are you still confident that it developed naturally? No, I'm not convinced uh, about that. I think that we should continue to investigate what went on in China until we find out to the best of our ability exactly what happened. Liz Wheeler has been following this story for the past year. She just launched a new video podcast, The Liz Wheeler Show. And in the first episode, which is out today, she breaks down the connections between the possible COVID leak from a lab in Wuhan, Fauci's funding for it from the NIH, and the bat lady that brought it all together. Whoa, we got a lot, a lot to cover here. Liz, welcome. Buck, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Okay, let's start with uh, what is the most compelling case, and I know that you could probably spend an hour talking about it. I'm sure you do a lot of it on the podcast you just launched, but give us the, the abbreviated, the executive summary of did this come from a lab based on the evidence we know, based on a preponderance of the evidence? What do you say? Well, first of all, I would say Fauci's a liar, obviously. I mean, he literally said to Rand Paul last week that it's preposterous, the idea that the NIH would have funded gain of function experiments in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. When we know for a fact it's public record, any one of your viewers can go and look this up. It's a matter of public record that an NIH grant was given to a man named Peter Daszak of EcoHealth Alliance, who subcontracted that uh, that grant to the bat lady in China, Dr. Xi, to study bat coronaviruses and how they can be weaponized to uh, 
to be contractable by humans. I mean, there. The, the most compelling piece of evidence, I would say, that this uh, possibly, if not probably, came from the Wuhan Institute of Virology is SARS-1 and MERS. They were able to identify, investigators were able to identify not only the origin species, but the intermediary species uh, before it jumped to humans within four to nine months. Four months for one, nine months for the other. We are now 15 months past the beginning of this pandemic and investigators have been able to identify neither not the origin species nor the intermediary uh, host of this virus, yet they claim that they're sure that it had natural emergence. Well, based on what? I mean, science, you're supposed to provide evidence of your hypothesis and there is no evidence for their hypothesis. The only evidence is a letter that Peter Daszak organized in the Lancet last year. Peter Daszak, the same man who contracted from the NIH to give that funding to the bat lady to study the bat coronavirus is how they can be weaponized to be contractable by humans. A letter in the Lancet organized by Peter Daszak said, "Oh no, natural emergence is certainly the way to go. Everything else is a conspiracy theory. If that doesn't stink to high heaven, I don't know what does. This point about Fauci's funding for the Wuhan lab or any Fauci involvement, as yeah. you know, Liz, this is very contentious, at least in the media. There are people that say that is, you know, complete, you know, horse, you know what, and that's not true and people shouldn't say it. But t tell me, tell me what the real connection is. I mean, really explain to me where is the connection between Fauci, NIH, or NIAD, where Fauci is actually the director, and this Wuhan yeah. laboratory and funding. I mean, make it as clear as possible right. so that so that none of us get accused of making stuff up here. You know what I mean? No. And by the way, it's not a conspiracy theory. It's not. It's just reality. You, as I said, it's a matter of public record. You can go and look at the funding. So, Dr. Fauci is the director of the National uh, Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, right? That it's a sub, it's a subheader of the NIH, right? He's the director of that. The NIAID gave a grant to a man named Peter Daszak, okay? Peter Daszak then subcontracted that grant to Dr. Xi in China, the bat lady at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. That's a very indirectly direct stream of funding. You don't have to follow the money very far to get back to Dr. Fauci. Dr. Xi, her specialty was weaponizing those bat-derived coronaviruses called gain-of-function experiments. They claim it's so that they can defend against pandemics. They can identify which viruses might jump from an animal species to humans uh, so that they can prevent it or create a vaccine or a treatment to mitigate it should that happen. But it's obviously a very dangerous thing to do. And the line of funding is just Dr. Fauci, at the NIAID to Peter Daszak at Eco Health Alliance to Dr. Shi the Bat Lady at Wuhan Institute of Virology. That's all there is to it. You can look it up for yourself. What do you think of the Biden administration's comments this, this week that they are looking to the World Health Organization? I think they called it phase two of uh, the investigation into the origins of COVID. They're, they're, I think it feels like they're telling us, Liz, trust in the WHO, which that's a tough one. Sure, why would you do that for one thing? But the WHO, the World Health Organization, had um, people go, they had a commission to go and investigate this in China. And their conclusion, of course, was that it was natural emergence. Guess who was part of this commission? Peter Daszak. Again, the same guy who is financially tied in. He would be financially culpable in a way should this uh, virus be found to have leaked from Dr. Xi's research in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. You can't have somebody who's financially invested in this research who could be culpable also be the judge to see whether it happened. It's, it's a conflict of interest. It's corruption. It's collusion. It's ridiculous. 
You've always been outspoken, Liz, on the relationship between big tech and the Democrats and how they're using their power to silence anyone like you and me who disagrees with them. Yeah. DeSantis, governor of Florida, signed a bill today that'll allow individuals to sue social media platforms if they're unfairly censored. Uh, feels like a step in the right direction. Do you think this will hold up? Do you think it'll make a difference? Well, I think the bigger question is why aren't we enforcing antitrust laws that are already on the books? Right, we have laws in our nation, federal laws against monopolies. We can see what big, how big tech is operating. They're operating like a monopoly. We we don't necessarily need a whole spate of new laws. Why haven't Republicans in Congress enforced these laws? I I still cannot get past the fact that Donald Trump in the defense bill when he was president, he wanted he threatened to veto this bill if they did not have a repeal for Section 230 in this bill, and Dem or, and Republicans in the Senate didn't let him do that. Republicans in the Senate had a chance to repeal Section 230, which would essentially take care of big tech censorship because it would remove their protections if uh, from liability if they were to censor people based on their viewpoints. And Republicans in the Senate let this go. They relinquished their chance. They didn't fight. They were squishes. It makes me so mad. Liz, what do you think they should do now that they're out of power to make the case to the American people <laughs> that they'll actually get it done the GOP will actually get it done the next time around. I think there's a lot of frustration out there for the talk of doing something when Trump was in office about big tech, but there was no action taken. No, I mean, they have a lot, they have an uphill battle, right, to regain our trust. And I think one of the first things that you need to do is you need to be able to speak up on the tough issues and not back down when the radical left pushes back. If I see, uh, people in Congress doing that, then I might begin to trust that they will actually take action in similar situations. Other than that, they do. They've lost the trust of the American people. The American people crave bold leadership, whether it's in politics or whether it's media figures like you and I, Buck. They want people who are unafraid, who won't back down to radical leftist bullying and who will play offense instead of playing the defense that conservatives have tended to play for the last 50, 60 years. Liz, good luck on the podcast. Good to see you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Buck. I appreciate it. A major Hollywood star grovels before the Chinese Communist Party. We'll have a truly pathetic video for you in tonight's Quick Hits. I want all of you to go to this website right now, preparewiththefirst.com. It's a special website set up by our friends at My Patriot Supply. Every day it seems like things are getting worse out there. The best way to have peace of mind is to stockpile emergency food and water. My Patriot Supply is America's leading preparedness company, and they're here to help you become self-reliant no matter what happens next. But you can't wait for something bad to happen, then react. You need to act now before we see a stock market crash, hyperinflation, civil unrest, or another pandemic. My Patriot Supply has been in business for over a dozen years, serving millions of families and earning 39,000 four-star and five-star reviews. Their food is specially packaged to stay fresh for up to 25 years, so when you prepare today, it'll be there for you when you need it. Right now, save $50 on their four-week emergency food kit at preparewiththefirst.com. The meals are delicious and provide 2,000 calories per day. No other brand comes close. That's preparewiththefirst.com, preparewiththefirst.com. Action star John Cena apologizes to China for calling Taiwan a country and gunshots ring out at a George Floyd, uh, at George Floyd Memorial Square. Those stories on Quick Hits tonight. Let's get to it. How much influence does China really have over American superstars? It's a very important, I think, a very important 
indicator of their influence overall in America. When you have globally famous NBA superstars, for example, like, like LeBron James, who won't speak out against the Chinese Communist Party, its oppression of people in Hong Kong or the Uyghurs in Western China, you say, well, hold on a second, what's going on here? How, how can American millionaire superstars feel the need to bend the knee to China? But this is the reality of the global marketplace that we're in and so many people who, even the very famous and very wealthy already, who want continued access to the Chinese market, will bend that knee. And the latest is John Cena, who spoke at a, at a it was for the Fast and Furious 9, I believe, for promotion for the Fast, I can't believe they made nine of those movies, but it's still making a lot of money. And a lot of that money is made in China, in fact, in the Chinese market, keep that in mind. He was doing press and he mentioned how in the country of Taiwan, people will be able to see this very, or this movie very early. Not allowed to say that. That's what the Chinese Communist Party insists on um, because they still believe that Taiwan is China, is part of the People's Republic of China, even though you get into some very murky territory there. And I certainly think Taiwan is its own country and should always be. Uh, but here is John Cena WWE superstar actor uh, apologizing in Mandarin for saying Taiwan is a country. Yeah, uh, you saw there, he loves and respects the Chinese. Look, and this isn't about really the Chinese people, it's about the Chinese Communist Party. He gave no disrespect to the Chinese people. In fact, you could say this is very disrespectful to the Taiwanese people. Um, but this is important for us because it shows you just how powerful China really is in our culture, as well as in our politics and our economy. China matters a whole lot to people that you'd never think have to care about what the folks running things in Beijing have to say, but they certainly care a lot. Sad that you had this happening at the George Floyd Memorial. Gunshots ringing out. Here's the scene. Well, look, it's not going to be signed in time, at least according to the timeline that the White House and U.S. President Joe Biden had. They wanted this bill of comprehensive police reform uh, to be... Uh, to... Just got to be careful here with some gunshots. Excuse us, excuse us. It sounds like gunshots. I'll let you know what this is. These seem to be gunshots. At the George Floyd Memorial, you hear gunshots. Not, this is not from police violence, friends. We all know that, right? We all understand what's going on here. Um, but the left will not admit that they're just wrong on this. I mean, I know we started the show talking about this, but their anti-police rhetoric, really their anti-police animus, is just rooted in falsehood. Cops do an amazing job in this country, day in and day out, and those who don't should be held accountable. And that's it. There is not some systemic change that will come from defunding police that will make people safer. In fact, the opposite will happen. It has happened. And it is very troubling that we can't all just at least agree on that much. 
Saki Bomb at the White House. Uh, she has a job that can be very tough. For the previous administration, any White House press secretary was essentially being fed to the lions every day. Some did very well with that, but nonetheless, there was a lot of, there was a lot of challenge in it all. And Jen Psaki, on the other hand, has a press corps that is effectively eating out of her hand every day. What's it like for Biden to be so amazing? Tell us about the challenge of Joe Biden being such a better, more truthful, more honest leader than the previous awful orange scary man that, na that whose name we won't even say because we've deplatformed him from Facebook and Twitter. Uh, here's just an example of the kind of softball questions you get when you're the White House press secretary for a Democrat administration like what Biden is. What more can you tell us about the uh, president's um, health regime? We hear he's lifting weights. What sort of weights is he lifting? Does he have a personal trainer? And what happened to his Peloton bike? Did he bring it to the, to the White House? I didn't know where this was going, um, but I'm intrigued by it. Um, I, I will say I have nothing to read out on the president's uh, private exercise regime, uh, but I can tell you, having traveled with him a fair amount, um, sometimes he's hard to keep up with. Sometimes he's hard to keep up with. Sometimes he's just got to take everybody to the gun show. Hey, here I am, doing push-ups, lots of them, taking you to the gun show, Joe Biden style, when I can remember where I am. But yeah, sure, the press, they're the guardians of our democracy or, or whatever, something like that. John Kennedy, he's a senator. He had a fun ad. We just wanted to show it to you. Play it. Folks, I believe that love is the answer, but you ought to own a handgun just in case. You just got to kind of like those funky beats, you know, but you know, when you got an accent like John Kennedy, you can pretty much get away with saying anything and people are like, yeah, that sounds about right. Um, what's with the, what's with the snub nose revolver? I, honestly, I mean, if we're going to, can we, eh, I'm not sure that's the, but it is old school. It's a wheel gun. It's old school. I give him credit for that. That's it for tonight's Hold the Line. The No Spin News with Bill O'Reilly is up next. Shields high.